when dedicating your life to jewelry, you sometimes catch yourself saying, I know it isn't going to cure coronavirus, but we shouldn't forget, though, that jewelry can be considered man's first step towards artistic expression, primitive man adorning him or herself. And some said it perhaps is the oldest art form on the planet. We can take pride in continuing a tradition that has roots dating back so long. Jewelry enables the communication of identity. It allows the transportation of memory and it inspires. To talk about his passion for the field and his body of work, I have invited Dr. Jack Ogden, a man who traces these stories of jewelry and gems through the ages, researching, teaching, and writing about them. He is considered one of the foremost experts in his field and is the current president of the Society of Jewelry Historians. With much excitement, I would like to say welcome, Dr. Jack Ogden. Thank you very much indeed. That's a lovely introduction. I'm happy to have the chance to talk about my, my passion. So, Dr. Ogden, to start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? Well, I, was born, my, I was born into a jewellery family. My great-grandfather started a jewellery business in Yorkshire, in the north of England, back in the 1890s. And setting up what became a very successful jewellery company, he was also a passionate amateur archaeologist. He traveled all over the Middle East. He knew some of the great excavators, Howard Carter, Sir Leonard Woolley and people, and actually helped out with some of the excavations, not digging holes in the ground, but of looking at jewelry that was found afterwards and advising on it. So one likes to think that some sort of jewelry gene came down through the, through the generations. But I think the more practical thing is that when I was very young, just seven years old, my, my, we moved up to Yorkshire, in fact, and my father did a lifelong ambition. He bought an old farmhouse, about three or four hundred year old farmhouse that needed renovation. And so we kept digging up things like old sheep skulls and horseshoes and stuff. So I very soon started my own little museum. So this is about the age of seven coming up for eight. The, um, this was sort of recognized by the family that I was this sort of budding amateur archaeologist. And they said, oh, your great grandfather was interested in this stuff. And then a few years later, someone said, I'm sure there's some old books of his somewhere. And they dug out some a few old books that had survived in an attic somewhere, and even a little box of bits, including a, a little Roman earring, gold earring. And one of the books was a, a, about early jewelry technology, the only thing that had ever been written, 1924 book at that period. And I could actually, with a magnifying glass, which of course every jewelry family has lots of them lying around, I was actually able to look at this thing from a very early age. So it, one could say that I've been looking at jewelry ancient jewellery under magnification for since, you know, since my very early teens. So it's a long history. And then I, you know, I got more interested. I dragged myself uh, to hitchhike actually to the, the Paris Tutankhamun exhibition in 1967, the first of the great European blockbuster exhibitions and got totally enthralled by Egyptian jewellery. And it really just developed from that. So I joined the family jewellery business, um, never that excited by it. Um, you know, retail, you, you buy a diamond ring, you sell it and you order another diamond ring. But I went for a year, sort of training, it was called, to work for a wonderful gentleman called Dr. Edward Gubelin, who owned a famous jewellery shop in, in Switzerland. And I was there for just under a year. And he recognised my interest. And he was famous for his work on looking at the internal bits of gemstones, inclusions. So I had lo lots of microscopes. 
And he'd actually had a small collection of pre-Columbian gold. And he let me look at this under a microscope. And this was my first ride on a microscope. So by, before I was hitting 20, you know, I'd been looking at old jewellery under a microscope and got totally hooked. And basically, that, that's, my, that's my start. And that's how I got into it. And ever since then, I've been building up this stuff, studying, researching. And over the years, I probably, I mean, I must have looked at many tens, maybe in, into the hundreds of thousands of pieces of historic gold, ancient, medieval, and so on, gold work under a microscope. And the interesting thing is nearly every piece I've looked at, I've learned something new. There's always some little quirk, some little difference. You know, why? How? And you learn. It's a constant learning thing. It's not just repeating the same thing over and over again. It's a constant voyage of discovery. So it's, it's, well, for me anyway, it's a fascinating subject to have got into. As a true gem and jewelry lover and, and to support your research, you have had the opportunity to handle really some of the world's most famous gems and pieces of jewelry. Could you maybe tell us a, a really memorable experience you've had with a piece of jewelry or a gemstone? Oh, it's difficult to know where to start. I mean, some of the most memorable experiences are when you find something is a fake and you have to tell the owners. That's I mean, a few occasions of that, which can be embarrassing. Um, Memorable experience, if you want, I was in the basement of the museum in Amman in Jordan. I, I did some work on a, a excavation. Well, I didn't work on the excavation, but I was working on the publication of a small hoard of gold jewellery from the early Iron Age. And I was down in the basement of the Amman Museum with my portable microscope. And the only lighting was, um, the decent lighting, was a photographic, you know, one of these very high, high wattage photographic bulbs. So I had that sort of clip very near to the microscope and I actually set my hair on fire from this while I was looking down the microscope. So in memorable terms, that's probably the most memorable. In terms of memorable jewellery, um, spending a few days in the basement of the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, looking at some of the Greek and Scythian jewellery gold work that had been found on, on the, around the Black Sea. So that was quite experience. But I looked at many museums around the world. I looked at, looked at jewellery. I, I mean, I learned something probably from every piece I looked at and uh, wonderful range of pieces, yes. Quite often, it's not the most spectacular that actually teaches the most. Sometimes the minutest fragment can give us an insight into something new. Having sort of looked at jewellery across the whole world and across ages and time with lots of different styles, do you have a preference or are you just naturally curious for all of them? It, I'm, I'm very, I think the word's fickle on this one. If I'm sort of doing some work on a Byzantine piece, that's that becomes the centre of my interest. And you know, that's all I wanted to find out more about. And then next week, it'll be sort of a bit of Archimedes Persian gold or a Roman something. So I tend to sort of move. I tend to, I mean, I like pieces with a fairly solid and fairly strong statements, I think is the word. I mean, I'm not desperately keen on sort of ancient Etruscan jewellery, which tends to be a bit frilly and delicate. I like kind of chunkier bits and um, major statements. But as I say, it, it changes. I mean, at the moment, and the, well, my most recent research has actually been about some historic gemstones. So that's moving into a slightly different field. But um, I don't think there's a major sort of subject that I've always been interested in, one particular period of, of jewellery. It, 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 it changes. It changes with me. I'm mature and, my, and so the error I interest in changes as well. Mm. And you have specialized in the history of jewelry techniques and have also advised auction houses on these fakes as you referenced before. Could you tell us a little bit more about this work and this area and, and the and the world of auction houses, how it operates perhaps? Yes, I should say a little bit how I got into this, because I, I mean, in the family jewellery business, I, they, they saw I was interested in older stuff. So in the 1970s, I, with my family's permission, I started buying and selling a few very early pieces alongside the usual sort of range of jewellery stuff. And that built up. 
and that sort of eventually took over. But then in the sort of late 80s, it was all getting a bit tricky and for various reasons. And I'd, I realised I was more interested in studying than, than buying and selling. I was never a good dealer in these things. I was much more interested in learning about the pieces than trying to make a profit out of them. So I, I moved into the purely, purely sort of consultancy world. And in that a consultancy, I mean, research doesn't pay. I mean, essentially, I mean, I don't think I've ever been paid for writing a book. Um, I mean, you do it out of love. So to sort of put bread on the table, I do sort of consultancy work, which basically means traveling around, looking at objects with people and telling them whether I think it's right or wrong. It's only an opinion. I'm not infallible, but, you know, people do ask me these things. And quite a lot of this work over the years has been for the major auction houses, um, mainly here in the United States. And really, it's the case they get offered a piece, a piece is brought into an auction house, and they want to know that it's genuine. And I mean, they have excellent people working in auction houses, but they're not specialists. They don't have a specialist for ancient jewellery. The guy they have, or the, the team they have doing ancient art, they might have specialists in marble and terracottas and pottery and all this stuff. So I sort of fill in the gaps on, on, on the precious metal side for some of these people. And so I look at these things and study them. I wander around with my portable microscope and a portable X-ray fluorescence analysis equipment and stuff like that, and look and advise them. And I mean, obviously it's only an opinion, but generally speaking, if I say something, I don't think it's right, then they probably won't put it in the auction. It's tricky because you have to be very careful with with, with old pieces, with ancient pieces particularly, because there's in the well, I mean, forever really, but particularly more in recent years, it's been a highlight on on objects being looted stolen particularly with the, the, the turmoil that's been in the, in, the, in the Middle East over the last few years. A lot of pieces being looted from sites, a lot of eagle, illegal excavation. So the auction houses have to be meticulous about checking where these things have come from and are they really an old collection that's been in Detroit for a hundred years or you know was it sort of smuggled out of Syria three months earlier. So they, they, they do their due diligence and it's quite difficult for me to, to sort of add to the provenance but occasionally I get look at the paperwork and it's interesting how often you now get fake paperwork which can be as sophisticated as the fake objects wonderful old letters of ownership and fake receipts and so on trying to create a kind of chain of custody that never existed so um the, i mean the auction houses by and large are extremely careful i mean i can't say that for all of them but the major ones are extremely careful in what they sell both in terms of authenticity and that it has a, a good origin it's not something that shouldn't be on the market Evidenced by the many books you have written out of, of passion, you are this prolific writer and educator, keen to really share what you have researched. Which books are you perhaps most proud of? And are you working on anything new at the moment? It's a difficult question that. I mean, my original book, uh, 1982 book, Jewelry of the Ancient World, which, which sort of covered the materials and technology of, of ancient jewellery. It didn't stray much past the Roman period, it's sort of ancient and Roman. I, yeah, I was proud of that. I mean, that, that was sort of a sort of broke a lot of ground in the subject. I think it was the sort of first book that covered the subject in, in any detail. So I was very proud of that. And it actually had, it was quite useful because... Um, as in, I might have hinted earlier, I actually left school at the age of 16 um, without much qualification, I must admit. I had a few, few what used to be called O-levels. And when I wrote my book, a very useful source was an old book, actually, that had been re-edited -re called Ancient Egyptian Materials and Industries, originally written by a guy called Lucas way back, sort of almost a century ago. But it had been updated in the 60s by John Harris, who was a professor of Egyptology at Durham University. And um, because he, is, he had been a very useful reference, I actually sent him a copy of my book. 
And he, next time he came to London, he said, oh, can I come and have a chat? So he came in and had a chat. And he said to me, oh, it's a very interesting book. I liked it a lot. Where did you do your degree? And I said, well, actually, I, I skipped that stage. I haven't done one. He said, well, had you ever thought of doing a doctorate? And I thought, well, hang on, no. I mean, I, I have, you know, half a dozen O-levels. That's not going to get me very far. He said, ah, yes, but most universities have this policy of accepting for PhDs, for doctorates, people who have a degree of suitable level or equivalent proof of academic, whatever it is. And he said, your book certainly is of a standard to qualify you to do a doctorate. Would you like to do a doctorate under me at Durham University? So I was actually thrilled by this, of course. I, I, so, I, so I sort of signed up for this distance doctorate. I mean, I, basically it was just a case of doing my research and visiting Durham every now and again and chatting with him. So it was, it was he, I mean, so in a sense, my, my book was not only a kind of a, a landmark in doing something, it was also an entry to, to sort of furthering my qualifications. And I mean, it might sound very silly, but being able to say you're a doctor and having initials after your name does cut quite a lot of ice, particularly when you're sort of doing work for other people at a later stage in your life. So it sounds a bit snobbish that, but it, 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 it had an impact and it was quite useful. And are you working on anything new at the moment? Yes, well, certainly this, my, my recent work has been on Gemstone, a book called Diamonds, An Early History of the King of Gems, which studies the, the use of diamonds from, well, the first diamonds in jewellery and, and so on, Few, few centuries BC through to the beginning of the 18th century. So I looked at that, but I've also been doing quite a lot of articles on gemstones. In fact, the most recent ones come out in the Journal of Gemology is on the so-called Black Prince's Ruby, which is a stone most people have heard about in the, in the imperial state crown in the, in the British crown jewels. This huge, great red, it's not a, not a ruby, it's a spinel, it's a huge, great stone that, you know, it's called the Black Prince's because it's supposed to have come down from the Black Prince. So anyway, I trace this thing back as far as possible through sort of uh, medieval documentations or Arabic and uh, Spanish, French, English documentation. And the whole thing basically is, is um, I won't use a rude word, but it, let's say there's nothing to substantiate the history whatsoever. The connection with the Black Prince was only suggested as a possibility in the 18th century on very, very flimsy evidence. And in fact, there's, I mean, it's not impossible, but there's absolutely no evidence that it was the Black Princess at all. So that, that's quite fun. So I've been working on stuff like that. But in the background, I'm doing a, a book on ancient and medieval goldsmithing technology, which is taking a long time. It's growing by the minute. I mean, it gets bigger and bigger. And this has allowed me to, to, to use another of my passions, and that is um, 3D graphics, because most of the things are now illustrated using uh, 3D graphic program, very much the same as a lot of jewelry designers are using, because it's, it's a very good way of illustrating construction and assembly, because photographs don't often show it, or it's not easy to see what you mean, and you can't, you can't explode an ancient piece of jewelry. And line drawings are quite difficult these days to sort of people to grasp them sort of things. And so it's all three-dimensional 3D graphics works beautifully. So this next book will be largely illustrated with 3D graphics on, on how they made jewellery in ancient and medieval times. Don't ask me when it'll be finished. Um, the answer was it was going to be finished the Christmas before last, but you know what it's like with the books. I hope in the next year or two. And when you talk about the, the graphics that you started to introduce in the in the books, are you drawing them yourself? Yes, I really got into this. This started by, by accident, really, because in the, it was about 2000, 2001, I was approached by a Greek company who, uh, <laughs> they'd got a European grant or proposing a European grant to see if it was possible to reproduce, there's a type of Byzantine, Byzantine Greek gold pierced work. It looks like lace done in gold. 
But it, what it tends to be is sort of fairly rep repetitive motives just arranged in different ways. And you get inscriptions done in this pierced work. And they were trying to work out whether it's possible to set up a computer program to reproduce this. So you, you could say what your name was, and then the sort of computer would then come out with a pretend Byzantine pendant with your name written in this pierced work. So for the sort of technical background to this, they, they approached me because I'd, I'd written about this Byzantine pierced work. And I said, this is a fascinating project. I'd love to do it. And it's being done with sort of EU funding. And the only way of doing this is a computer graphics. And they that were doing using computer graphics for other things. That's what they did. Uh, computer, very early adopters of this stuff. They said, um, well, there's a program called Rhinoceros, Rhino. You should try. So I got this thing and took to it, loved it. And there's a funny backstory to that one, actually, because, I mean, in England, you, you go through different stages of schooling. And uh, before, I, when I left sort of what you would call a junior school and went off to the, the senior school, and my exams to get into the senior school, let's say we're all right in the sort of maths and sciences, but, but my Latin, which was kind of fairly important back in those days, was terrible. Um, certainly hadn't passed in Latin. So I was being interviewed by the, sort of the headmaster at the school I was going to, actually the housemaster at the school I was going to. And he said, what do you want to do in life? And I said, well, I want to be an archaeologist. And he said, hmm, to do archaeology at university, you, you have to have Latin. I'm not sure um, this is right. He said, you're, you know, your sciences and maths are very good. I'm not sure what... Um, and he suddenly thought, you know, Latin might become less important in archaeology. <laughs> and archaeology is becoming a far more scientific subject. So why, if I said you can come to the school, we'll accept you, but you don't do Latin, you do mechanical and engineering drawing instead, which is an option. So I said, well, sure, if it gets me to the school, I'll do that. So I did start to do mechanical and engineering drawing, which sounds a weird subject, but the sort of the way to envisage something in three dimensions and to see it from different angles and exploded views. I mean, then basically Rhino just does the same thing, but rather than a big wooden drawing board and pencils, you're doing it on screen. So at the school unconsciously, um, unknowingly to me at the time, actually prepared me to use Rhino, you know, many, many years later. The interesting thing about using Rhino to sort of demonstrate or show how old pieces of jewellery were made, it actually makes, gives me new insights. So you suddenly realize that that curve is actually a sort of a curve in two or three dimensions. And there's no way that would join up unless they'd done this. So it's far more than just sitting and drawing a piece, trying to actually model it in 3D gives you insights into its construction. I don't think you can get in any other way. Your involvement in the wider industry has also been multifaceted. You've been CEO of the National Association of Goldsmiths, I believe it was called at the time, and launched the Jeweler magazine. You worked for GEMA and launched the Society of Jewelry Historians in 1977, to name only but a few. What do you feel is the role of these various institutions in the field and how, you know, have these developed through time and what do you think are the challenges or gaps in knowledge they really have to currently still address? God, that's a huge question. One can answer that for a long time. Yes, I mean, most of the things are sort of fairly by chance in life. In the mid-1990s, I'd sort of exposed, uh, let's say, a forgery sort of bracket coming on in Italy. And I got this sort of slightly scary phone call that basically was asking about the health of my children and don't let them play in the streets sort of conversation. 
So I thought I've got to be a little careful on this stuff. And there's certain people involved in the forgery industry that might not want me, you know, to be dis, me to do this work. So I thought maybe I should try something different. And I think almost the same day, I was rung up by a friend in London who said, you know, there's this National Association of Goldsmiths that they're looking for a CEO. So I thought, well, that'd be funding to try. So I went along to the interview, and and um, the, the the job there didn't actually interest me that much. But it was a split job in those days. Uh, essentially, it was three days a week running the National Association of Goldsmiths, as it used to be. That's a long time before it uh, sort of amalgamated with the British Jewelers Association. So three days a week running that. And the other two days a week was running what was what SIBJO, the International uh, Jewelry Confederation. And that was far more interesting because you're there, you're sort of working with the jewelry industry right around the world. And there's a lot of travel, which is always fun or used to be fun. So running that was was the sort of the, the icing on the cake for taking that job. I mean, I think that... that the, the National Association of Goldsmiths was a strange animal in many ways then. It was a, an organisation for retail jewellers in the UK, and it took that very strictly retail jewellers. I mean, you had to have a shop at the front door and a sign above it saying jeweller to be, be allowed in. And so when companies like Argos started selling jewellery, there's these huge debates whether they should be allowed in or not. And, you know, is, is it better that they're in helping us or outside? No, it's better to have them inside the tent pissing out than, you know, the sort of logic. And, you know, people who are working, selling jewellery, but from upstairs offices, were they allowed? And then all the problem with valuers, because of people valuing and appraising jewellery, most of them in those days were working as part of retail shops, but more and more independent ones were, were growing up. But So the National Association of Goldsmiths wanted to keep some sort of control over sort of quality of valuations being done, but people who didn't actually have shops weren't supposed to be members. So there was, it was an interesting time in the British industry. It, it, if, and basically they had a newsletter, it was a kind of, you know, just a few sheets almost stapled together in the corner that used to go out called Confidential Info, which is a strange name, but that's what it was in those days. So I thought there was room for a magazine in the industry, it seemed like a fun idea. So we decided to launch this kind of relatively glossy magazine for its day and great decisions of what to call this thing we thought of all these names and you know whatever we looked up there was something already in the world called that the professional jeweler there's one of those there's the something to another retail jeweler no that's gone then suddenly what about just the jeweler it's so starkly obvious but no one had actually called the magazine just the jeweler so we called it the jeweler and i think it, you know i think it served a purpose because it was it covered you know what things you shouldn't put in your ultrasonic or cleaning machine and what are the problems with nickel in the early days before people were worrying much about it so i think it, it sort of brought a lot of topics to, into the sort of the retail jewelers that they weren't aware of and things and helped help training it's all about education it was an interesting time it's really about sort of um, bringing together retail jewelers and educating them the sibjo side was great because that's trying to lay down international guidelines they're not laws or rules but they're guidelines about what you should or shouldn't do ways you should describe things what's wrong what's unfair trade practice i remember one thing that i, I managed to push through in my days was the fact that a lot of jewelry was made in yellow gold and then rhodium plated and then sold as white gold so you know somebody would order a ring in in white gold so all the jeweler did was rhodium plate their yellow gold one and sell it to them and this was because this would wear off of course and leave horrible yellow gold showing through so the idea that this was an unfair trade practice is one of the things that Sibjo did but they produced guidebooks on gemstone uh, what to declare and what not to declare so that was a very important role it's difficult because there's no policing Sibjo can say you know you you have to call a synthetic sapphire a synthetic sapphire 
But unless there's someone around you know, knocking on doors and checking that it's being done, it, it's slightly empty exercise. But it's good, and it's getting it's getting sort of quite a reputation in the world, Sibro, for, for laying down these rules and works closely with things like international standards. So that's it's doing a good job. Then I then um, actually moved to Germany for a few years. Uh, for various reasons at the time. Then when I came, I came back to the UK, just at the time they're looking for a, um, a CEO for the Gemological Association. And that seemed like quite an interesting thing to do because I'd actually trained with the Gemological Association uh, in, in, the, in the 70s. And that seemed like a fun thing to do, an interesting thing. They had a laboratory, a gem lab, which was an exciting thing to be involved in. So I took that on, which was a, a lot of fun. Um, interesting. Unfortunately, the, the 2007-8 crash happened. Finance has got in a bad state. And the laboratory, which had never been a paying proposition, unfortunately, um, was just not economic to keep going. It either needed something like a million pounds worth of investment to buy equipment, up-to-date equipment, or closing down. And very sadly, we had to take the closing down uh, option, which is probably one of the saddest decisions was involved in my life, I think, really. So, yes, it was an interesting thing on the gemological side. And that, again, was largely education. So I suppose in many ways you could say sort of my sort of professional real job uh, side in life is largely being tied up with, with, with education in the jewellery industry. The Society of Jewellery Historians, you set that up as well. What was your thinking behind the society? Way back in the 19... Well, it was actually 1977. It struck me that there was there were these people interested in, in, in jewellery, old jewellery or jewellery of all periods, museum curators, conservators, archaeologists, researchers, and all these people. And there was no real communication between them. You know, so the, the, the average museum curator wouldn't know what a gemologist was or uh, somebody digging up in the field wouldn't recognise something. Else. So I was thinking there should be some means of bringing these people together because, you know, the, the, the sum is always worth more than the individual parts, isn't it? So if you could combine all this knowledge, find a sort of forum which people could share their knowledge, it would help the subject to grow. And I discussed this with a, with a guy I knew quite well who was... Um, a guy called John Goodall, who was a kind of fixture at the Society of Antiquities. He's always in the library there. I have no idea what his income came from, but he was pretty well always in the library there, working away on, on old medieval seals and this sort of thing. And I used to come in and sit, sit, sit in my gallery. I had then drinking coffee with me and we're discussing jewellery. I said, John, what do you think? We need something to bring these people together. And he said, that's a good idea. Uh, we could set up a little society. I said, well, I was just thinking of sort of publishing a newsletter and sending it round. He said, no, I'll have a word with the antiquaries, Society of Antiquaries, and see if they're prepared, you know, to, to use that place if they, they would sort of host it in a way. So we got, you know, this this matured and talked to various other people involved in the jewellery world, British Museum, Victoria Albert Museum and places. And we got together a small committee. And um, that November, I think it was, we had an inaugural meeting. So it was very exciting. And as I say, we've, we've arranged conferences over the years. Um, we publish the now online journal. We have a magazine now three times a year and lectures. The lectures have been held at the Society of Antiquaries in London, which is a wonderful building to have these things in. With COVID, it's not possible, but there's a, there's a silver lining to that cloud because it's actually prompted the society um, to sort of modernise itself a little bit, uh, the Society of Jury Historians. And these, these uh, we're now doing Zoom lectures. We're putting them out on, on, uh, online. And these are being, they're going online on, on the members' website. So if you can't get to one of our lectures, which in, in, the, in sort of in real days are held at the Society of Antiquaries about six o'clock in the evening, you can't get to one of those. They are from now on going to be recorded anyway. So they will always be available for members on our website. So it's a, it's a great society. It's worth, it's worth joining. I think anyone interested in jewellery, jewellery history uh, should be a member. And we always have at least one lecture a year devoted to sort of contemporary jewellery, contemporary designers, 
I had Jonathan Boyd talking a couple of months ago um, in Royal College. I mean, a fantastic lecture on his sort of, I don't like the word inspiration. It, 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 it annoys me a bit like the word heritage, but, but talking about what, what drove him and his ideas behind his jewellery. So yes, it's, it, it's an interesting thing to start and um, it, it seems to be ticking over all right. It's, it's a fun thing and I, I recommend people to join it. What do you think are sort of the challenges and gaps in knowledge at the moment that you feel all these societies should really look at addressing? I think the most useful thing they can do is educate. I mean, it really, I mean, I'm sorry, I keep harking on about education, but, you know, sending out glossy magazines. And I think one of the problems now is that a lot of jewellery magazines are really just sort of, um, um, let's say sort of press releases from jewellery companies topped and tailed by the magazine. There's not a lot of kind of uh, meat in them. They're not, if you look at jewellery, you know, uh, jewellery trade magazines going back, even even back to the sort of 100 years, they're, you know, they're solid stuff. They're educating the whole time. How do you tell this? What's new on the market? How to find out what it is? Now they tend to be a little bit more sort of um, marketing magazines for, for, for jewellery designers and things. So I think, it, I think the, 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 what they could do more is concentrate on, Sort of education with trying no without being too sort of patronising about it, but to actually uh, tell people what they need to know, articles about what they can do and what they can't do and how they should do it, and things that's going to help people grow their businesses in more in practical ways and knowledge. So I think that's that's probably the big thing is 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 more more education. But these days there's so many ways of doing that. It doesn't have to be sort of instructing, sort of somebody wagging their finger at you telling you what to do. It can be done in subtle ways, but to to teach people how to improve. Uh, the, their business experience and of course the, the, the experience of the jewellery buying public. With regards to the Society of Jewellery Historians or the society or the, the, the topic of jewellery history in its entirety, that the big thing that constantly surprises me is how little research that's been done on more recent jewellery. It's extraordinary. I mean there's endless books, articles and so on 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 uh, medieval Roman jewellery. I mean in my bookshelves if I want to find out what sort of typical Roman solder alloys are for gold jewellery, there's probably I don't know, a dozen or more articles or books. It'll give me good ideas of analyses of Roman soldiers. But you say to somebody who's dealing in more recent sort of vintage or antique jewellery, say, what solder alloys was Castellani using? Or what about Lalique? What are the compositions of enamels? They don't know. This has been left out. And there's just as many fake bits of 19th century jewellery kicking around as there are fakes of Roman jewellery probably more so, but people aren't really looking at these things. There's no, no research to my knowledge. There's only one article I know that gives a sort of analysis of the gold that Lalique was using. I don't understand this. So the, I think the gap um, really is, is to, for people to study the technology of 18th, 19th century jewelry in early 20th century jewelry um, in some detail. And perhaps at the same time, we could also look at documenting what's going on today for those who are <laughs> going to be writing about us in the future <laughs> that I also don't think happens sufficiently enough but it's maybe a barrier for for people with an interest that that writing component and perhaps what you say is interesting it doesn't have to be the traditional formats anymore it could be different formats as well it's, it's a difficult problem that one I mean the something that worry, worries me because I mean I'm in my research. I'm looking at sort of a, a lot of books. Obviously, I mean, behind me, and um, just love spending time in libraries. Libraries are my cathedral. So I love sitting in them, just working on stuff. Now everything is digital. I mean, I have a huge. I mean, a huge digital library of, of articles and things published. I mean, tens of thousands of articles relating, all reasonably well, sort of put in separate folders. So I know what to look for where. Um, 
But how are they going to survive? I mean, I can look at a book in a library that's 300 years old and read it. Are my PDFs going to be readable by anybody? Or is anybody's PDFs going to be readable in 300 years? A lot of the photographs I've got uh, on my desk, I've got photographs that my great-grandfather took at archaeological sites, black and white photographs, as clear and crisp as the day I took them. I've got box loads of colour slides, you know, the old sort of two-inch square, whatever they were, colour slides taken in the 70s, 80s, where the colours have all run and they're unusable. So I, I, the, the advance of technology doesn't always mean to the advance of longevity. And I think that's the big problem is, is how do we keep this stuff alive? I mean, this podcast, I mean, um, <laughs> not sure I'd ever be any use to anybody in the future, but I mean, will it be around in any form, um, you know, 300 years from now? But if it was written in a magazine, then it probably would be hard copy magazine. So I think that's my, my big worry is technology is fantastic. I love it. I'm an early adopter. I was using computer by the end of the 70s. Um, but it has its downfalls. And one of which is the longevity of the things it's recording. I mean, for example, um, you know, you can say, well, print everything out. But I mean, does everyone know whether laser, you know, laser print, I can't remember, what it's, I mean, it's a carbon based thing, isn't it? Is that going to survive hundreds of years? Like old print, I can read a book printed by Caxton 500 years ago, but will I be able to wear, read a, a laser printed article 100 years from now? I don't know. I suppose people are testing this stuff, but it's, uh, it didn't know, it's, it's, it's a major worry. Um, mm, and the sheer amount of resources out there make it very challenging to, to retrieve things sometimes. And, and we just keep adding what, warrants itself to become physical does that stimulate longevity because that's a, a really important thing to consider when you're then deciding on the channel to use one, one of the things we're talking about the, you you said the sort of the wealth of information out there that's both good and it's both bad two reasons it's bad one of which an awful lot of people today think research is googling now you Google something, you find it in Wikipedia and Google and everything else, and that's research. I've seen things, people, you know, write articles, even sort of research papers, and basically they're just taking what they find online. Now, obviously, it's a huge resource. I mean, when I was working on the Black Princess Ruby, of all the medieval texts and documents, 80% of those were available online. Some kind librarian somewhere had scanned this stuff, put it online. I don't know if there's anybody else in the world interested in it, but it's amazing what you can find online. But there's just so much. And a lot of stuff is repeated over and over again with no substantiation. Um, I mean, for example, going back to the same recent thing on the Black Prince's Ruby. And whatever you go, I mean, it's millions of pages will mention this on the internet, all saying this belonged to the Black Prince. They never question it, just goes on and on and on. And making, you know, repetition doesn't make it true. The more cautious writers have said, are believed to be, or the legend says, a little bit more cautious, but no, half or 90% of the internet now, it's, it's, it's a fact. So there's a lot of misleading. People don't check their sources. They take things, they say it on the internet, they repeat it. And I said most of the most frustrating for the for the for the researcher in jewelry and probably many other things is Pinterest. I mean, you'll find a you, you're sort of researching a type of you know, Roman ring, and you suddenly find a wonderful photograph of one very much like it on the internet. Pinterest doesn't say where it's from. Why would anybody post something on a site without saying which museum it was in or which book it had come out? I mean, it's, it's crazy, but it's very very frustrating. I mean, thank heavens, the thing is like academia online, uh, academia.org, which is, has, is a huge resource of articles. JSTOR, which you have to pay a subscription for, but it's, it's research is well worth it. 
to look at articles published. I mean, there's no there's no one journal, there's no one stop source, unfortunately, these days. It's totally diverse. So the, the benefit of all this is there's a huge amount of stuff being published, particularly new, new work on jewellery coming out of Far East China. There's some amazing scholars over there working on early, mainly Chinese jewellery, but not entirely Chinese jewellery. Eastern Europe, or formerly Eastern Europe, some wonderful work being done on jewellery. Um, but they tend to be published in local journals or more general archaeological journals. So uh, the, 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 the secret today is trying to collate this stuff, keep track of it, rather than subscribe. You can't subscribe to everything. It's impossible. So I see academia and, and JSTOR are really the, the things that they are the, the, the sources for today. The coronavirus pandemic has disrupted our world significantly. And perhaps as an expert on the past and a key industry supporter, I wanted to ask for your thoughts on the future of our field. I mean, the, the, the virus has had a huge impact on everyone's lives. And, you know, there's no way of belittling that. I mean, it's put a lot of smaller people out of business. It's changed relationships. It's affected families and everything else and, and killed people. So it's, it's had an extraordinary effect on our life. But there are... One sort of positive, if, I mean, some people might say it's a negative, but one sort of, I see it's a positive side effect of this, is that it's kickstarted a lot of technical stuff, that it's changed the way just the society of historians. And from now on, everything will be broadcast online as well as done in a sort of a room in front of a, an audience. So this has changed. And I think that's very much for the good. Uh, the fact that people are able to work from home, I think, is good. It's helped online sales enormously. I think a lot of people who thought they used to have, have to have a shop with a front door and a sort of worry about being able to take a lunch break can now work from a, an office equally well. And they realise this. The idea that people would buy a, you know, a diamond ring on the internet was, was laughed at just you know, 10, 20 years ago. Nowadays, you, know, you have diamonds selling for millions. I mean, a lot of Sotheby's and Christie's auctions are online now for things fetching a huge sum of money. And that's made possible not just because you've got a selling mechanism available online and good cameras and graphics to allow it to happen, but you've also got um, ways of representing and photographing the things. You can show, describe jewellery very well online. There are ways of doing it now that weren't possible. You know, you have scans, 3D scans, or, you know, these wonderful things where you photograph from every angle so you can create a kind of three-dimensional moving thing of an actual piece of jewellery. It's done with gemstones all the time and, and more and more with jewellery. I mean, these things have existed before the virus, of course, but th this is kickstarted. It's given them a sort of boot up the rear, if you like, to, to progress faster. So this is going to have a huge effect. Jewellery design has changed a lot. I mean, as you say, we talked about, you know, Rhino and, I mean, you know, never forget you have a choice. There are other software programs. So uh, things like that have allowed designers to, to change the way they're doing things. And nowadays, a jewellery designer can, you know, you, you don't necessarily need a, a sort of studio with a workbench and lots of breakable saw blades and getting your hands dirty. You can sit in front of a computer screen um, email the, the STL file to a manufacturer and, you know, FedEx will send you back the finished process piece sort of three days later or two weeks later, whatever it is. So it's changed the whole jewellery supply chain. And this has been sped up by, by the virus. So the virus has had a positive, as well as horrible negative effects on many, many people. It's also had a, a positive thing. It's, it's, it's sort of done what I think would have ha happened naturally, but probably over a much longer time period. I mean, it's, it's quite fun looking back at jewellery designs through the sort of the 90s, uh, 1990s and into the early sort of part of 20th cent, uh, 21st century, is you can see jewellery designs change 
at a certain point. It's almost as that on blue whistle. And that's the introduction of, 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 of NURBS, which is the rhino approach, where you can get different curves and different ways things move, uh, you know, sort of interaction of curves, which wasn't possible for. Car design changes the same way, the different shapes and the curves of cars. And it changed with the technology. So it's sort of, to some extent, jewelry design is, is, is impacted on by um, computer technology. And this has happened in, in its form right through history. I mean, the introduction of iron tools changed the jewelry industry in the sort of in the, in the Iron Age. So, I mean, technology in other fields has always impacted on, on jewelry manufacture, but uh, computer technology most certainly has. One thing that worries me is with computer-aided design for jewelry is that I think you do need still to have had bench training first at least to some extent, because you see pieces being designed on the computer. They look absolutely beautiful on the computer. It's like architectural drawings. You see this amazing architectural model or drawing. You think, isn't that a wonderful building? When you see the con concrete lump in place when it's built, you think it looks really ugly. And the same with jewellery. It's not just the aesthetics of the thing. It's that you have to understand, you know, that the, 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 the prongs or claws to hold a stone have to be of a certain thickness. There's no point in designing something. You can design and render a piece of jewellery. It looks absolutely gorgeous on the screen. But in practice, how are you ever going to polish the inside curves of that piece? So I think you need a, a sort of practical knowledge as well as computer knowledge to be a jewellery designer. I think that's very important. So I don't think you're ever going to move totally away from the workbench. I think, I think understanding how things are made, how things are finished in particular, uh, it's important. And the other thing that I think is probably not taught enough in jewellery schools is a little bit of the metallurgy of the materials. Why gold and why silver behave the way they do, why they crack the way they do, things like that. I think, that, I think that's important. And I think that's, I don't think that's covered enough. That's something else, You've got the history, but also the materials, why they behave the way they do. I think that's important. In the British Academy of Jewellery, we agree entirely with you we teach the students uh, jewelry bench skills before they are taught any rhino because we've seen these problems happen and we teach metallurgy because yeah having that knowledge of what why the material behaves in the way it behaves then you can problem solve much better now, so one, one of the, one of the things uh, I remember that spurred me to the society of jewelry historians i was reading a catalogue of an exhibition of jewelry that was held in a museum in america and there was a, in it, there was a pair of hoops, gold hoops, complete little gold rings. I mean, no, no gaps in them at all. And the curator um, catalogued them as earrings. And obviously the fact they hadn't got any kind of way of putting them on the ear because they were complete rings, obviously puzzled him briefly. So the curator then said, they must have been soldered together after they'd been placed on the ear. And that just showed me how completely technically out of touch an archaeologist could be. I mean, the idea of soldering gold while it was on somebody's ear, I, I don't think you'd do that today. Yeah, yeah, very interesting that, isn't it? You are, of course, also a visiting professor teaching history to jewellery students. And as we've just been talking about looking back at technologies that in the past have changed and impacted uh, jewellery designs, and as they are still doing so today, how important do you think it is for students to familiarise themselves with the past of our profession? I, th I think it's important to know a bit about the history. I, th I think there are two reasons for it. One, one of which is that you get a feeling for the material. You get, I mean, you sometimes see a, a sort of a modern contemporary design by some jeweler, and you look at this and say, and find one identical that was made in the Bronze Age. You know, it looks identical, the, the thing. So it's quite nice to know what's gone before and, and get, you can get inspired, to use that word I don't like again, by early pieces, but also to understand how technology has developed. I mean, jewellery isn't just a kind of an island we are now. It has this whole 
5,000 years of development. And understanding something of that foundation adds, adds another dimension to your understanding. It also needs another dimension to selling the pieces. I mean, it sounds sort of a bit sort of money grabbing, but in a sense, by being able to market, by understanding a bit about the history, it does help market pieces. This idea of what it comes from and why, and there's the whole heritage, if you like, of a piece of jewellery, the ideas behind it. It adds this whole sort of different momentum to jewellery when you come to sell it. So I think I think it's important to understand the past. And then, you know, someone said, you know, you can't predict the future until you understand the past. And to some extent, that's probably true with jewellery as well. You know, you get, you get an idea of what's, what's coming um, by looking at what's been, I think. As our look towards the future has been coloured with uncertainty, it is encouraging to remember humans' affinity with the dormant and that it dates back centuries. When we look at the past, it is unlikely that this will ever end. Change, however, is an inevitable part of life. We only have to look through some of Dr. Ogden's books to trace changes in fashion, tastes and, most importantly, technologies, which played a big role in these developments unfolding. For sharing his fascinating life story and thoughts today, I would like to thank you wholeheartedly, Dr. Ogden. You have and continue to make a meaningful contribution to the field in a variety of manners, and we are very grateful for your efforts. Thanks so much for joining me for this inspiring conversation. Great pleasure. Next month, I'll be joined by another guest, so watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast series, Jewelry History, with Dr. Jack Ogden. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.